It's just not fair. I'm pretty sure every single one of us in the room has said that phrase before, but you've got to be careful with fair. Because when we say it's just not fair, we almost always say it when we're looking for a benefit to ourselves. Think about this. You've probably never been sitting in a parking spot at the mall, pounding your steering wheel saying, God, it's just not fair. I pulled into this space. I know that other car has been circling for the last 10 minutes. It's just not fair. No, you probably said, Lord, thank you for overseeing. You knew I needed this parking space more than they did. That's how it works when we say it's just not fair. And throughout history, people have been saying it's just not fair in regards to themselves. But then this guy named Jesus came along. And when it had no benefit for him, he said it's just not fair for them. Galatians 3.28 says, in Christ, where it's neither Jew, Gentile, free, slave, male, or female, all are one in Christ Jesus. This author and historian named uh, Thomas Cahill, he said that this was probably the first statement of equality in history. Jesus standing up for the people who had been marginalized. Think about human rights and think about uh, human dignity uh, and the Declaration of Independence, these self-evident truths of our inalienable rights that no person should be deprived of them. And, th and just think about what other movement invited people, regardless of age, race, gender, to participate together. Welcome to our third week of the Know Jesus series, and really this is a thought experiment where we, uh, we place ourselves in these words, you don't know what you've got until it's gone. Sometimes I like to play this game with my wife, just appreciate me when you think about how hard life will be without me. It doesn't really work very well. Uh, but it's, it's this thought experiment where we place ourselves in history and we say, what would our world be like right now if Jesus had never existed? H.G. Wells has these amazing words to say about Jesus. He says, I am a historian. I am not a believer. But I must confess as a historian that this penniless preacher from Nazareth is irrevocably the very center of history. He says, Jesus Christ is easily the most dominant figure. So Jesus was, without a doubt, a champion of human dignity and probably the most successful at championing human dignity at that. Uh, Jesus and his teachings and his followers have changed the way that we see race, that we see children, and that we see women. In Rome, the girl child was killed because of the investment that it would take to nourish her and, and the, the return that they feared they wouldn't get out of labor. It was said that uh, from Rodney Stark that for every 1.4 million boys, there was only 1 million girls uh, because they were usually drowned for being weak. In the Greco-Roman world, education was reserved only for uh, male children of elite families. But then this odd community of Christ followers started educating boys and girls. It's undeniable that the origin of orphanages points back to these words that the Jesus people expressed let the children come to me. Mary Magdalene and other women occupy the very center stage of the Gospels. In fact, Mary 
was the first one who had received the revelation that Jesus would be resurrected. And then Jesus' mother was the very first one to discover the plan for which God was unfolding for his way to saving humanity. Would the progress of human dignity, this is the question that comes up all the time, would the progress of human dignity have happened without Jesus? That's really an impossible question. It may or it may not have, but what we do know without a doubt is that it happened when it happened because of Jesus. So how did this Jesus guy, without any wealth, power, or this eloquent education, how did he set more pens in motion? There are more works of art about him. There are more discussions around him than any modern or ancient influencer. And I think some of those answers are in the Gospel of Luke. So whether you've got an analog, turn-the-page kind of Bible or a digital Bible, or if you just want to read along with me up here on the screen, we're going to go to Luke 19. It starts this way. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. He could not see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him. And since Jesus was coming that way, when Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and he said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once. All the people saw this and began to mutter, he has gone to be the guest of a sinner. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, here now I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will, we're missing a section there, but he says, I'll pay it all back and more. And then at the end, it's Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to his house because this man too is a son of Abraham, for the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. So it's easy for me, uh, having grown up in the church hearing this story, to kind of dismiss it as a sentimental moral tale that Jesus loves short people too, uh, which means a lot to me. Uh, but to this original audience, it wasn't cute, it wasn't funny. In fact, it was, it was disruptive. It was dangerous. And people, they, they started to whisper as they all muttered. And there are a few reasons for this. The first one, I want to talk about this tax collector idea. We don't really have an equivalent for a tax collector uh, in our modern context, but a tax collector was a person who sold out their, their countrymen in order to make a couple bucks. So Rome, who was oppressing the people of Israel, had a structure in place where uh, they wanted the people of Israel to reap the taxes from Israel and then give it to Rome. So Rome put an incentive structure in place where Roman soldiers would back up these tax collectors. So picture yourself as Zacchaeus or Matthew and you're sitting in a toll booth uh, and you see Peter and he's coming along with his catch of fish for the day. Well, when he gets to your booth, Rome immediately takes 50% of his catch that day. 
And then this incentive for Zacchaeus to make sure that he gets what Rome gets, he also gets a little something. So then he adds on another 10 or 15%. And if for some reason Zacchaeus just didn't like how you looked that day, he could make it 20 or even 25%. So you're talking up to 75 or 80% taxation. And then to top it all off, Zacchaeus is a chief tax collector. Uh, and most of us in our society, we're not used to this in, in the capital, capitalistic kind of market that we're in. Uh, and know your IRS agent, it does not count. It's different than that. Uh, it, it's, it's this abuse of power and this holding down people underneath using incentives and tax. What this story is trying to get at is it wants us to exercise this thought experiment of who is deplorable in our society. Who is someone that you would find it really difficult to show God's love to? This story is inviting us to think about people who we can't imagine deserve God's love. So maybe, maybe a better way to get into this story and, and picture Zacchaeus would be how would you feel if Jesus came onto the scene today and you knew that he was going to have dinner with a pedophile tonight? How would you feel if you knew that Jesus tomorrow was going to have lunch with a white nationalist who marched at Charlottesville? As I know for me, I would start to say, what is going on? What happened to good versus evil? Jesus, are you on the good guy's side or are you on the bad guy's side? Because I'm just left here totally confused. That's what was happening. Because scripture tells us that all of the people, not just some, but all of the people began to mutter, he is going to be the guest of the sinner. The other reason why this was so provocative is because meals in ancient history meant a little more than they do to us. Uh, meals were boundary markers. Yes, they brought people together, but they also kept people out. It would be like the, the pre-civil rights movement, and you would see a sign on the front of a restaurant that said, no blacks. Or if you're in the UK, you would see signs that said, no Irish, no dogs. They were boundary markers. Now, we, we don't segregate formally anymore based on race, but if we're being honest, you tend and I tend to mostly eat with people that look like me, talk like me, think like me, have a similar socioeconomic background. Some of us haven't even eaten with a person of a different ethnicity in months. And this time, it mattered just as much who was on your guest list as who was off of your guest list. One theologian said that Jesus actually got himself killed because of the people that he ate with. See, for Jesus, he used the table as a way to welcome people in, not to keep people out. Jesus had a mission and he had a methodology. Both are announced in this Gospel of Luke. The first one we just read uh, in Luke 19.10, that Jesus, he came as the Son of Man, which is the significance of the Son of Man language is it's kind of like saying this super 
man. It's pointing back to the very beginning of creation, Adam, the, the archetype human, and it's saying, here's, here's the new standard of humanity. Here's the one who's come to fix every, everything. So the one who's come to fix everything, has, he has come to seek and save the lost. Now this is an explanation of what Jesus came to do, but it's not an explanation of how he came to do it. And for that, we're going to look in Luke chapter 7. The, the, the story begins with a, a group of very religious people that are criticizing Jesus' cousin. So Jesus responds to these religious people and he says, for, the, for John the Baptist came neither eating bread nor drinking wine, and you say that he had demons. So Jesus starts, starts to talk about this John the Baptist and just how significant he was uh, and he, he's basically saying, hey, he was a guy that's above reproach, that he wasn't gratifying himself the way that everybody else does uh, to make his appetite drive how he lives. Uh, and then he goes on to say, John is really the greatest man ever born of a woman. To which you and I go, oh, duh, everyone's born of a woman. Jesus' audience was no different there. So what Jesus is doing in this moment is he is adding human dignity. He's saying, hey, I'm going to fight this battle for my cousin John the Baptist, but I'm also going to fight this other battle over here because I know that these religious leaders who I'm talking to, this captive audience, why would they ever think that a man would be better than the very gender that he needs in order to be born? So then Jesus continues to fight the battle for John the Baptist, and he says all these really great things about John, and then Jesus he uses his title again in verse 34. The son of man came eating and drinking, and you say, here is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. So he's talking about himself again with the son of man title. He says, John, he did none of those things, and you called him a demon. And then when I go and do them, you accuse me of being a drunkard and a glutton. It's kind of like Jesus is saying, what gives, y'all? No matter what I do, you're not happy. And then Jesus, he goes on and he says this really piercing line. He says, but wisdom is proved right by all of her children. That's a cool line. Because Jesus is saying, watch how the fruit of my life is going to show you that you've been wasting your breath criticizing the most meaningful life that has ever been lived. Can you imagine like your big brother picking on you, you're like 10 years old, and you just say, yo, but wisdom will be proved by the fruit of my life. Boom. <laughs> He'd be like, what? He probably also wouldn't know what to do with it, and you should just say, roasted, dude, and you'd move on. He's, Jesus is so punk rock in that way. So I want to go back to the Son of Man title. It says, so the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Jesus is announcing his mission. And in Luke 7, 34, Jesus is announcing his method. The Son of Man came eating and drinking. Can you imagine a conversation with Jesus? And you're like, hey, so you're getting ready to start your like, three-year ministry. This is going to be kind of a big deal, huh? And he's like, yeah, I'm going to seek and save the lost. All right, that sounds cool. I don't really know what that means, but it sounds big. How are you going to do it? I'm going to smash some carbs, dude. 
And the point that I'm trying to make here is that Jesus had this really ordinary but radical approach to his method. Now, I don't believe that Jesus was a drunk or a glutton, but I do believe that he must have lived his life in such a way that it was an easy target for some people. Actually, one uh, New Testament scholar named Robert Cheris said, uh, Jesus is either going to a meal, he's at a meal, or he's coming from a meal. That's my boy right there. In fact, right after Zacchaeus' story, Jesus is at a party with a guest list that includes uh, a prostitute. I just love how Jesus, he wasn't using meals as this boundary marker. He was using meals as a way to invite people in. And it's not the exception of Jesus' life, eating and drinking. It's actually the rule of his life. Just in the Gospel of Luke alone, there are 54 accounts of Jesus having meals with people. You go to the Gospel of Matthew, and there are 90 references of Jesus eating and drinking. And the point is this, that Jesus, he changed the world one meal at a time. One meal at a time. Jesus is saying, I've got a mission, and I'm going to reach people. But the way I'm going to do it, it's not a billboard, it's not a bullhorn, it's not an Instagram ad campaign. The way that I'm going to do it is I'm going to break boundaries that everyone else has placed in this world around societal norms. And I'm going to do that by breaking bread. And I think what he understood are these two statements. Distance creates distortion, but proximity brings perspective. Distance creates distortion, but proximity brings perspective. Think about how this plays out in your life. I know for me, uh, even on a on micro level, in my own family home life, if Monday night I run the Esther to basketball, and then my, you know, I work maybe a Tuesday evening, and then Katie's going to work a Wednesday night, and then we've got a social event Thursday night. By the time that we get to Friday, there's a ton of distance between my wife and I. And if I walk in and I see maybe the house isn't as tidy as we like to keep it, I can pretty quickly go, oh, I wonder how much she was sitting down watching TV. Hope she didn't hear that. But if I would have had the proximity to her that week, and I could have seen our daughter Isla maybe spill a gallon of milk on the kitchen floor, and that took 20 minutes, the time that she had set aside to try and tidy up a little bit, and then I would have awakened this compassion. See, Jesus knew that we have distorted views of each other from a distance. Isn't that what's happening in our society right now politically? But if we could get a little proximity with somebody who thinks of differently than we do oh man maybe we would awaken some compassion with that proximity so you're like yeah 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 that makes sense and then we start to think about okay so if Jesus had this way of breaking boundaries by breaking bread then I guess that means that I should do the same thing And we start to imagine our lives and just how busy they are. And we all have these different excuses for why we can't pull it off. But the the reason why is because we confuse hospitality with entertainment. We've come up with excuses for why we can't do this like 
Uh, I live in a dorm. I've got roommates. My apartment is a mess. Maybe I don't know how to cook. I'm not an extrovert. I don't like to entertain. Or maybe for me, it's like I know I have to put my kids to bed at 8, and at 8.15 every night I am performing an exorcism to get them to fall asleep. I need to clarify that hospitality is not the same as entertainment. And as long as you see those two things as the same, you'll never be able to unlock this thing that Jesus was doing. I know a lot of you, when you think about hospitality, what comes to mind is like this manicured Martha Stewart-esque magazine cover, and you've got all matching fine china, and a 5,000 square foot house, it's like perfectly lit and all of that. And then some of the younger crowd, you picture like this 50 foot long table with a pergola and some backyard lights draped over and everyone looks like a Swedish model and there's like a peekabooing tattoo and there's just enough makeup that you're like, yeah, I'm down to earth, but I'm also a little sophisticated and we think I can't pull that off. And you think you can't pull it off, A, because you don't have the the design of Martha Stewart, or maybe you're just not a Swedish model. And so that's where we get stuck. So what I want to do is I just want to show you a compare and contrast of entertainment and hospitality. So entertainment, there's exclusion. This is about who is in and who is out. But hospitality is about inclusion. You're motivated to bring people in. It's an open table and all are welcome. Entertainment is more about performance. It's like, hey, let me show off my home, my culinary skills, the money I have to buy, whatever, like wine and a circle of friends. And it's kind of a show-off opportunity where hospitality is about service. It's about tangible love. Entertainment, there's usually a clear line between the host and the guest Whereas hospitality blurs that line. Just like Jesus saying, hey, Zacchaeus, I know you're loaded. We're going to go to your house. We're going to clean out your cupboards. All my buddies are going to come over. So Jesus becomes a host while at the same time that he's a guest. Entertainment tends to be something that you schedule weeks in advance. It's an event on a calendar, which there's nothing wrong with planning or any of that. But hospitality is more a way of a life. It's a rhythm. It's just part of what you do and who you are. It's spontaneous because it's, that, it's just that open door. Entertainment is reciprocity, which means I'll have you over and then you're going to have me over. You know, we have that line like, oh, yeah, I picked up lunch today, but I know you're going to get it next week. Whereas hospitality is just this act of generosity. It's just giving and expecting nothing in return. Entertainment, on that note, is a marker of stratification. So it's about leveraging who you're going to invite next, uh, that you increase your popularity one party at a time. Whereas hospitality, the way that Jesus used hospitality, is he aimed it often side by side and then sometimes downwards. He said, let me bring you up to my level. I love how the New Testament, the writers, Paul the Apostle, and all these letters talk about hospitality. They don't describe it as Jesus, the Son of Man, eating and drinking, but it's the same idea. Hospitality comes from the Latin word hospice, which means that you turn strangers into friends. That's where we get the word hospital, the marker of the Good Samaritan 
who turned a stranger into a friend. Hebrews 13.2 says these awesome, awesome words that go like this. Don't forget to show hospitality to strangers. For by so doing, some people have shown hospitality to angels without even knowing it. Now, maybe, maybe the writer of Hebrews meant that literally, and they said, hey, when you host someone that you didn't know or you don't know very well, maybe, in fact, they're an angel, literally. Or maybe the writer of Hebrews was trying to show us that you doing the most ordinary thing can be the most supernatural thing that you can do. That you could take a person who is not famous to you and you can just see how special they really, really are. So in getting ready to hawk this weekend, uh, my wife and I are having some conversation. We just moved into a house. Uh, We lived in my parents' basement for two years while we were building a house. Uh, speaking of hospitality, that's just ridiculous. Uh, and they, they've been so generous to us, and now here we are, we're turning this corner where we're back into having our own space. And, and I'm really inclined to kind of hold that back. Say, no, we've worked so hard to get here, we just, we just need to, you know, this is our spot. So we're having this conversation about, oh, I... Sometimes as a, a person who teaches scripture, you find yourself caught in between uh, where you are and where you want to be, and it could be hypocritical for me to say, look, every night I have my door wide open and it's like a soup kitchen in my house. But Katie and I, we, we, we're sitting there and we're talking about, okay, so if there's three meals a day, seven days a week, there's 21 opportunities for us to seek and save the lost with eating and drinking. Uh, and, then, and then we start, you know, of course, drifting into the, well, yeah, but we have friends over all the time. And that's true. And that's awesome. And it's a blast. And it is good. But how often are we having people over who don't look like us, who don't think like us, who maybe don't have the same economic background? And with a little introspection, we both thought to ourselves, yeah, we got to do this more. So maybe it's not one of 21. Maybe you have to think about having two weeks of your time. And so you're thinking, okay, I can squeeze one strategic meal into 42 meals over the next two weeks. Just one. Or I can just grab a quick brunch with somebody or a breakfast just before work. Someone who I wouldn't normally dine with. We, uh, around here, we talk about this idea that uh, Southbrook exists to connect people to Christ, not religion. Uh, and one of the ways that I internalize what it means to be connected to Christ is it comes down to these three things that I see in the Gospels, that you are with Jesus, uh, that you become like Jesus, and then you do what Jesus did. That's how I think about what it means to connect people to Christ and sometimes to connect myself to Christ. Be with, become like, and then do what he did. So Jesus, he had this way uh, with people. Sometimes I like to imagine what it would be like to sit at a table with him. Would, would there be jokes? Would there be this tenderness? Would it be patient? Would it probably be a little awkward sometimes? 
And he embraced the messiness of it all. He embraced the messiness of you and he embraced the messiness of me. And so every time that the church comes together and we, we gather around this communion, the bread and the wine, for me, it's a reminder that the creator of the universe, he saved a seat for me. And now I get to be a person that's saving seats for others. What I want us to do in this moment, uh, the band is going to play this song about how he is here for you, that he, he is mending the broken one meal at a time. And it's a chance for us to gather around these communion elements to think about the seat that was saved for us and the seat that we're saving for somebody else in order to create this crowded table. Because heaven is for those who can stand it. So take your time. The band's going to sing this song that we, we have sung already. And you can, you can take it captive for a moment to go grab the elements around the room to sit to think about this guy that somehow he, he sought and he saved us one meal at a time, eating and drinking.